This is Women's Tech Radio, a show on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network interviewing interesting women in technology, exploring their roles and how they're successful in technology careers. I'm Paige. And I'm Angela. So Angela, this week we talked to one of my friends Thursday. She's an amazing writer. She writes in the technical space and we kind of dig into uh, how she got into that and some cool stuff about conferences and some experiments she's been working on. It's just a great interview. Yep. And before we get into the interview, I want to mention that you can support Jupiter Broadcasting and specifically Women's Tech Radio by going to patreon.com forward slash today. It's a monthly subscription-based support system, and uh, you can do as little as $3 a month or whatever is comfortable for you. Patreon.com forward slash today. And we get started with this week's interview by asking Thursday what she's up to in tech today. I came to tech a little bit differently than I think a lot of people did. Um, I'm first and foremost a writer, and I've done a lot of writing about technology, especially programming, because the average freelance writer isn't so interested in, in writing about programming. From that, I started working with PyLadies, which is a Python user group for women. Um, I've recently just come off of organizing a Python community conference here in Portland. And I just get up to my eyeballs in all sorts of other technology-related pro- projects. I always think of Pilates when I hear Pi Ladies. <laughs> oh. I know it has nothing to do with it, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that isn't the first time I've heard that either. Oh, really? Oh, no. I'm not unique. <laughs> no, uh, we, we often have booths at different conferences, and I, I manned the OSCON booth uh, this summer, and... We had several male programmers come up to us and be like, Pilates, why would Pilates have a booth here at <laughs> OSCON? Oh, jeez. Like, oh, awesome. Cool. So why Python? Like, what, what struck you about Python? Or I guess in general, like, why tech as a writer? Like, what about it kind of pulled you in? Why were you willing to when so few other people were? Well, I, I grew up around people who were very invested in tech. Um my grandmother had email and gave it up in 1994. Like she had had enough. She'd had it for several years at that point. Wow. Yeah. She was um, a university librarian. So I learned a lot about technology from her. Um, My other grandmother had one of the first personal computers out there because she kept the books for um, family businesses and things like that. And I just grew up around all these people who were using technology kind of ahead of the curve. And I just kind of became this total nerd and it, it worked for me. That's really awesome that you kind of come from a long line. And you mentioned on both sides, it was your grandmother's. Yeah. That, that tickles me. Yeah. I like it. Well, 1994 is a great year. It actually is my favorite year. Really? Yeah. Why? I, I don't know. Okay. Um, I think mainly because of music. Yeah. To be honest. Oh, it was a good music but year. It's also when my Jenny was born. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know things like that. I know. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So like, so what do you find are like the challenges in covering technology? I know like people are always like, oh, Paige, you should write a blog. And I'm like, well, that's why I do a podcast. Uh, But in general, like, I don't really always know how to frame things around technology. I feel like I have things that I would like to say and I'm trying to say through this, but to to put it down in writing, it seems so boring. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that boring is an issue that I run into a lot 
but that just might be because I'm a little overly interested in everything. I want to know all the things, as it were. <laughs> but one of the things that I have noticed a lot of people struggle with is actually telling the story behind here's this new piece of technology or here's this idea that I'm working on. Because as humans, we don't really understand things without context. So having the story, having the, the personal connection to why this is important mm -hmm. is always necessary for, for us to really understand what's going on. Yeah. And when you look at like somebody has written a new math library or somebody has created an API that parses data or something like that, just tossing it up on the internet and saying, here's what this does, doesn't actually get us to the point where we can use it or value it or understand it. We, we need that context. We need to see it in action. We need to understand why it's important much more than we need to understand how it works. That's a really great way to frame that. I, I totally agree. I think the, the pieces of technology that I've picked up on are ones that have good stories. I think even like the recent frameworks I've gotten into, they're usually because I, I read a blog post that's like, hey, this solved this problem that I had instead mm -hmm. of this is a solution. Exactly. And so I guess that leads into in, in tech, why Python? Why PyLadies? So part of that is a question of community. And in Python, community is very well valued. And the story of the community is told very well. Uh, there's a huge emphasis on diversity. Like at Python conferences, having codes of conduct and sort of a welcoming environment is the norm rather than something that has to be hashed out every time somebody's planning a new conference. Um, and I had actually had some experience with uh, PHP, especially the WordPress community, before moving into Python. And the difference when I started going to PyLadies events and some of the Python user groups was, was pretty phenomenal just in the way that they made sure that I felt welcomed and a part of the community, even though I'm not primarily a programmer and I don't write a lot of code. So that, that sort of uh, relationship and community aspect has been huge for me. And I'm on your blog right now. <clears throat> which is thursdaybram.com and you you appear very well written like do you well obviously you're a writer is that is that a natural skill did you go to school for that yes right the background like i mean like were you always a writer is that a more recent thing how did you get into writing sure i've i've always been a writer on some level like i freelanced uh, as a writer even in high school and that's always been my my big strength um, I went to school, uh, I went to the University of Tulsa for undergraduate. I have a degree in communications from there, and then I have a master's degree in communications design from University of Baltimore. Um, but that was more, I'm already good at this thing. I can do well in these classes than anything else. Um, I've always really enjoyed writing, and I've always felt that that's like one of one of my key skill sets and what I've written about has changed but not the fact that I spend most of my time putting words in a row that makes sense so I also know because we're friends outside of the podcast so I'm very fortunate to have Thursday as one of my friends but I know that you're also really passionate about helping people dive into the industry and like making those sorts of connections and like 
I guess I've always wanted to ask you why. So just the, the, the whole building of connections fascinates me on certain levels. It's such an unobvious thing about any industry is the, the connections you need to get a new job or to become part of community or to organize a conference or any of those things. It's no matter what industry you're in, it comes down to who you know and how you interact with people. But that's not a skill set that's really taught anywhere. It's not something that we're educated on. If you're lucky, you grow up in a family um, that has sort of those sorts of connections built in. Or if you come from a privileged background, you might learn it through things like fraternities or sororities. But for most people, it's not necessarily a skill that, that exists. So looking at how to teach that, how to make it a more thoughtful process has just fascinated me forever. I totally agree with that. I've, I've actually been working lately with some groups that are trying to do some of that soft skill teaching. I mean, obviously, I love hard skill teaching. You know, teaching JavaScript has been great the past couple of years for me. And but uh, kind of teaching out some of those social skills that I have because I came through a really non-traditional background. And like, honestly, coming from theater is like hacking the, the whole process for me. Because, hmm. you know, fake it till you make it is super easy if you have a degree in theater. <laughs> And you've been trained to actually talk to people if you have a degree in theater. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and I was always kind of fascinated also in, in networking. I'm, I always say, and you know, people kind of look at me funny, but people are the greatest puzzle. Like mm -hmm. ah. e even from an engineer standpoint, like I try to express this to my engineer friends. I'm like, listen, even if you don't want or have these soft skills, like reframe it for yourself. Like perspective is everything. Make it a puzzle. And suddenly it's way more fascinating to most geeky engineers. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you find valuable like in that mentor mentee kind of space, if you're trying to build these networks, like I know um, I've had a lot of discussions over the past year with people who are, I don't know, like Intel, I had a talk with Intel and they're like, well, how, can you help us get senior women into our program for technology? And I was like, no, because there really aren't any. And, and I think we're really struggling with how to make them. I would, I would go deeper than just that surface level, honestly. It is kind of a question of the ecosystem, right? Because when you're talking about mentees and mentors, you're talking about people who fill in both roles at different levels. Somebody might be very technically adept but need a mentor on the soft skill sides. Or somebody may be able to communicate effectively but have pretty poor technical skills. So it's, it's this whole ecosystem um, that we need to develop of people who are able to recognize their own strengths and help where they have those strengths, but also recognize their own weaknesses and ask for that help. And without sort of that ecosystem approach, I don't think we're going to do that well in continuing to move forward. And I don't think that it's just necessary in terms of gender. I think that it's very valuable in terms of gender, but it, that it goes a lot deeper. Oh my goodness. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, we, we talk about it in a genderized context because that's kind of our focus, but it's mm -hmm. those skills are really important everywhere. Mm -hmm. But I honestly don't see the, the tech industry as it currently stands as 
sustainable for most people. Uh, just the, the way that most companies do their recruiting, how often people wind up changing jobs just to, to move up in their skill set. All of that is pretty impractical from, from an industry-wide perspective. Yeah, I totally. I, I always like to kind of ponder the idea, like, what are we doing because we're doing a lot of this? Like, you get promoted internally out of a development role, say, and you end up in management. And they're really very, very different skill sets. And I think, you know, we kind of have this American idea of getting promoted to the level of incompetence and, and left there. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, how do you run around that? And I think that's part of why, like, including diversity is helpful because you have these people who have backgrounds that have made them good leaders and they might just be poor programmers yeah, so far. And honestly, management and programming are such different skill sets that while a manager needs a good technical knowledge base, they don't necessarily need to be good at writing code. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a flaw in the way that, that a lot of companies operate. They, they take some of their best programmers and attempt to turn them into managers, but those aren't those are the people where, who honestly should stick to coding right because that's their strong suit yeah yeah i mean and in, in, it's almost like having a path for someone as a developer is challenging to a lot of companies like how do you let someone like you kind of get to be developer and then you're maybe a lead developer and that's mm-hmm. kind of the end of the road which is the problem that i had doing like uh, it repair slash infrastructure stuff it was like i had gotten to the point where my next step was to essentially end up in a server room doing what would later become DevOps and or nothing else. And, you know, kind of how do you how do you build a path for people to continue on? Because I think especially in, in today's day and age and with our generation and the generations under us, like you need that. Like you want yeah, well, f- fulfillment. I, and- I think it's always good to even try another path, like not necessarily management, but uh, develop another skill mm. or see see the company from another position. Other than management, you know, like if, if not management, then another position. Be, and some of that has been happening with our company. You know, um, one of our producers took over the production of another show and I'm seeing where things are kind of, um, well, falling out, <laughs> mm-hmm. not quite being done the same way. But now, like, they understand a different perspective. And so do I. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's actually neither one of us really moved roles, but it's just different because it's a different show. Yeah, that makes total sense. So Thursday, you talked some about the uh, Community Organized Conference. Um, I'm pretty sure it's PyDX. It is. Can you give us some of an overview? Um, I'm always fascinated by what it, it makes to take an event like this kind of come together. So I guess some of that and some of the why and all that jazz. So PyDX took place uh, in October. It was, I consider it a resounding success. Um, we did not quite meet our goals for selling out. Um, we came within four tickets, however. Oh, so, man. If yeah. I had known that, I totally would have just bought those tickets. <laughs> I I told everybody that we had four more tickets for me to, to reach our goal. But... Oh, what, on Twitter? Because Paige mm-hmm. isn't good at that social stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a constant. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you will have your chance next year because we are going to throw another one. And the, the sort of idea of having this conference was sort of this multi-layered approach. 
uh, PyCon, which is the, the largest Python conference on this continent, will be in Portland later this year. Oh, and one oh of the wait, reason- wait, wait. This year, 2015? Uh, 2016. Oh, sorry. OK, good. All right. No, yeah, I'm just double checking. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so one of the reasons we decided to have a community conference here was to sort of get the community a little bit more ready for all these people who are going to be coming to town. Um, we got several speakers who gave their very first talks ever at PyDX and are already working on proposals for PyCon because they feel much more comfortable about it. We did a beginner track so that people who were kind of trying to decide whether they even wanted to get involved with Python had six months to really uh, go from the basics that we introduced them to at PyDX to a point where it's going to be valuable to put down, I think the PyCon tickets uh, will be 300 So that's, that's kind of pricey if you don't know Python yet, but if you've had six months to work on it and you recognize that it's valuable, then you can get a lot more out of a conference like PyCon. Um, we also wanted to run some experiments. So uh, the organizing committee for PyDX was four-fifths women. Uh, we had a token gentleman on on our, our team. Um, and we did some things pretty differently from the average tech conference. Uh, we, we had a completely dry conference. We provided child care. We, awesome. Yeah. We didn't do a large conference party. We did birds of a feather dinners instead where people could actually hear themselves talk and, and follow up on what they had heard. Um, all of these different things that we wanted to sort of try out and see how they worked. And I think they, they worked out phenomenally well. So we're, we're pretty pleased with that. So as, as a writer... Um, and mm-hmm. honestly, I will admit I haven't looked at your blog in the past month, but are you going to kind of parse that data and bring that data back out to the community in the stories of both both sides? Like, let us know how it worked and why it worked. And, you know, because that seems really valuable. Like, all those experiments are super cool. So we didn't collect a lot of data, but we are making some of it available. Um, on top of that, we're helping... Our, our various organizers um, are helping with a lot of other conferences that are going on. So we're, we're getting to put some of this information into play. Uh, Melissa Chavez is one of the PyDX organizers, but she's also the woman who's run logistics for Open Source Bridge for the past, I want to say, four years. She's also organizing VegFest, which is the, the large vegan festival here in Portland. Um, uh, we've got people working on everything from, uh, puppet comps to very niche or, uh, projects as well. So we, we are making sure that our experiments get repeated in a couple of other places. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I would totally encourage you to collect some data and do that. Even if you're just doing surveys, it's, uh, you know, data changes things. What gets measured gets managed. Absolutely. Oh, very cool. Um, you mentioned kind of both in your organization, I'm sorry, totally distracting your story of, of Pi, Pi DX, but these, some of these things are really cool. You kind of mentioned diversity at your conference and diversity of community and accepting of community. 
Like I was kind of wondering from, you know, a technical standpoint, do you think that part of that influence is the fact that Python, unlike a lot of other kind of modern languages, is used in so many different industries? Like, you know, Python is well known as a, a math language and a science language. It's also a web language. It's a it's a bot language. Like it's kind of of all the modern like big guns, it's it's the most diverse. That's that's a really interesting question to me, just because the the languages that Python is often compared to, uh, Ruby and PHP in particular, have gone such different routes in terms of community. PHP has by by default because WordPress runs, I think an estimated twenty percent of websites now. Uh, I think it's even higher than that now. Oh, of course. It's, it just keeps growing. It mm-hmm. just keeps getting bigger. Um, but they have this community that is very different from what has happened with with Python. Um, and I think part of it is the, the examples set by the people who came early to the community. Um, there's There's just some really good culture in Python that was established very early on. Um, Some of the biggest open source projects in Python didn't grow out of someplace like Silicon Valley. Um, Django, for instance, was was created in Lawrence, Kansas, which is this tiny dot on the map in the middle of nowhere. The the guys who worked on it were newspaper uh, I believe they were developers for a newspaper, but they worked they worked with a bunch of journalists. And they just came from this very, very different culture than I think um, a lot of programmers have. So I guess it does tie into how many different industries Python has been used across. Uh, but because there's so many people coming from non-CS heavy backgrounds. I think that that's helped a lot in maintaining this this more welcoming culture. Oh, that's really cool. I I will be honest, it's a, it's not a language that I have learned, but it's always a language that I've kind of enjoyed uh, kind of observing, I guess. It's a really neat culture. Yeah, I'm I'm always pleasantly surprised by the things that are happening in the greater Python community. Awesome. So the PyDX, would you say that your experiments, like overall the conference, like kind of, I guess, finish this out on the story, like were they successful? Do you think you've, you've accomplished your goal of setting up for PyCon? Um, you know, that sort of thing. I think that our experiments were very successful. Um, we got a ton of positive feedback about having a dry conference. Several people actually said specifically that they chose to speak, they chose to attend because it felt more welcoming that they didn't have to just plan on dealing with drunk people. (laughs) Um, Our conference was incredibly diverse without even much effort. Um, We didn't quite have 50% parity for uh, gender, but over half of our speakers were diverse along some spectrum. So I'm going to I'm going to pause there because that's, I think, a really big topic right now. How did you do that? Uh, so 
part of it was was my general tendency to go to people who I think are going to be able to say interesting things and demand that they put in uh, presentations. Um, and I have a pretty wide network that I would say is is fairly diverse. But on top of that, having most of our organizers be women, we reached out to the people that we we know personally, first and foremost. And that led us to people who aren't quite the, the, the same usual suspects that you see at most conferences. Um, on top of that, we did several things very consciously. Um, we published our code of conduct very far in advance and made sure that everybody was very aware of it. We gave out scholarships uh, that were essentially just diversity scholarships, but basically no questions asked during the application process. It was, do you think you're diverse? Do you think that you need scholarship money? Put put in an email, and as long as we have enough money to go around, we'll, we'll keep handing it out. Um, not forcing people to fill out a lot of paperwork or anything like that, I think helped quite a bit. Um, having on-site childcare was also something that I think helped uh, quite a bit because people who, for some reason or another, um, might have, have decided to stay home, couldn't find a sitter, couldn't arrange for uh, taking care of kids, they were automatically able to come even without having to pay extra for the childcare, which is amazing, because I am literally at this moment mailing or texting every family member I know to see if they can take my kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a huge issue, and it's not just a generalized issue. Like there are single dads out there, or you know, yeah, mm-hmm. totally a thing. So I guess like kind of one last thing, like to wrap back around. Um, I think it's really interesting that you kind of to get the diverse panel. You essentially you asked for it. Like directly, very directly. Oh, and this absolutely. Is, and this is actually something that has like some social proof behind it. I know there's a couple studies, but um, in general, women and on top of that, other people of diversity need to be invited mm-hmm. to do something. Like we're we're not as as a as an underrepresented culture, you're generally not going to to stick your neck out um, because there's there's a lot of risk and um, and a lot of other things that kind of go along with that. When you're when you're the only person in the room, it's it's more difficult. You don't have the support that's there for everybody else. So you have to actually reach out and say, hey, I know you're a cool woman in technology. I know you're a cool, diverse person in technology. Come and share your technology with us. Not even like, hey, share about diversity because that gets old pretty quick for anybody who's talking mm-hmm. about diversity in tech. Um, but, you know, come and give a technical talk. Come and, you know, talk about your beekeeping habits. Like, whatever. <laughs> I think that, that creating the environment is a big step as well. If you are showing that you're not just saying that we, that you want diversity, that you are backing it up with action is so important. I mean, it's a little thing, but I don't speak conferences that don't have codes of conduct anymore because that's like the absolute bare minimum that an organizer can do to make sure that they are meeting the needs of a diverse audience. And so many conferences still fight back about having a code of conduct. It it boggles the mind. Yeah. It's just like, 
it's such an easy step and it's like there's tons of open source codes of context it's not even a lot of work like mm-hmm. a lot of the events that i run we just pull down one of the mit license codes of conduct or whatever and we're like does this fit our needs yep sweet let's use it and what what really drives me a little crazy honestly is we're we're talking about people who see the need for an open source license or if they're creating commercial products, they see the, the need for putting an end user license agreement on everything. But at the same time, these are people who don't think that they need to discuss uh, expectations and behavior for a in-person event. Mm-hmm. It's illogical. Yeah. I think, I think you should yell at people like that. It's pretty pretty perfect argument. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, we are about out of time. And Angela has to run, and I have yep. to run, and there's lots of good things to do this weekend. Um, mm-hmm. You know, keep your eyes open in your community for awesome events like PyDX. There's more and more going on all the time. Um, and if you're in Portland, look for PyDX next year, and come on to, down to PyCon. I may make an appearance, and we'll have a good time. Thank you so much for joining us, Thursday. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women's Tech Radio. Be sure to check out the full transcription of the show at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Do the show drop down, select Women's Tech Radio, and then just scroll down below the video. That's where all the show notes links. And like I said, the full transcription is right there. And if you have people who aren't podcast listeners, feel free to send them on over to our YouTube channel. They can check it out there. Sometimes that's a little easier for people. You can also catch us on Twitter at HeyWTR and send us an email at WTR at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.